We heard a couple of words earlier in terms of setting a tone, and I believe they were profitability and advancement of the culture. And I want to, as a writer, use two different words, literally the tone that I wish to approach the subject in. One is personal, and the second is visceral, because visceral are the reactions in the, the working community and all of us who, in one way or another, are dependent in some way upon the extraction of timber from uh, public and private lands. With a book, this is out of the clear-cut crisis. The only copy I have that doesn't even have a cover on it anymore was a book that pulled together a series of articles I had done for the Brazilian, and it includes uh, some commentary that I'll bring up uh, from the analysis of the forest management practices uh, by the Boley Committee from the University of Montana School of Forestry and others. But uh, this is the visceral part. I dedicated a dedication to this book when it came out after the series had appeared. Last spring on the seasonal breakup brought a temporary halt to most logging operations in western Montana. A logger who had been off because of the breakup visited several outfits that had not shut down. Looking for work, the logger filed in an application at one of the larger companies in the Flathead Valley, and then was asked to come into the office of the company's president, quote unquote, to talk things over. The logger was duly asked if he was related to quote that young writer, unquote, in Missoula who was quote, causing all the trouble for the timber industry. The logger allowed that he was, and then was told that certainly he must realize that if that young writer continued in the troublemaking, then no job with this company would be available for the applicant. The company official, a powerful man in the community and the industry, apparently expected his bidding to be done. However, he had made one slight miscalculation. The logger came directly to the point. Quote, there's no connection between me looking for a job and what that young writer says. He does his job and I do mine. And the logger stomped out of the office to go elsewhere to look for work. I relate this here because it was pertinent to the pages that follow the commentary on forestry. That the logger was my father, Ted Burke of Stryker, Montana, and to him and the working logger like him who live and work with a long love for the forests about them, I dedicate this book and my writing and commentary in quest of good forest management practices. They are people who do not wish to use the forest at the expense of the resource that sustains them. They are my people and this is our land, and our work is related only in that we both want to see on our land the management practices that are good for the long term. In the audience is a friend of mine, a co-worker of mine at the Missoulian at the time, and knows the pressure that was brought to bear, but I spent almost six or seven years there under weekly pressure for the Missoulian to let me go because of the work we were doing that led to the, the Bowley Report and led to the National the President's Panel on Timber and led to all of the analysis across the National Forest. The key thing is that while we look at this sample of clear cutting on the bitterroot, it was taking place similarly on the Tongass in Alaska and on the Bridger Teton in Wyoming 
on the forests of California and the southeast. Everywhere, clear-cutting as a tool of management had uh, taken over as the dominant force. It was the glamour issue, but the key aspect of this was that clear-cutting was only a symbol of the fundamental issue, was, which was as brought out in the Boley Report, brought out in the series of our articles that we did, that timbering had subjugated every other value of public forests, like recreation and like watershed management and like aesthetics and on and on, to a place of being non-entities in the decision-making process. The issue was, could you and would you get the cut out? It's important when we get at this that at the center of this was the United States Forest Service. This is a picture of a ranger station at Alta on the Bitterroot National Forest in Montana, the first forest ranger cabin built in the United States of America. It's on the West Fork of the Bitterroot River. And because of that, and the fact that in 1910, Gifford Pinchot had come to the dedication of this cabin, the Bitterroot from the very beginning of the Forest Service had been centerpiece to looking at the, the forest and forest management. At the same time, this is a picture of a mill in the, the Bitterroot in the 1920s. By and large, up till World War II, we just heard a slide program where the large corporations came in and ripped and raped and took whatever they wanted off the public lands. But in terms of the citizenry, it was almost bucolic in its approach. Little, small lumber mills like this that would employ 20 to 50 people all over western Montana and Idaho, etc. These places were called working circles. That's the phraseology that the Forest Service used in terms of providing timber to quote-unquote sustain the harvest of timber over time to maintain both the uh, economic uh, strength and the vitality of the forest. Given then a major factor in our history called World War II, first the Depression and then World War II, however, after the war there was an incredible increase in the demand for better housing across the country. We had been by and large freed for the economic restrictions of the Depression, and it was the timber industry across the country grabbed hold of this notion that they had to have free reign on the forests to build houses for the veterans who had saved us from the perils of Hitler and Tojo, etc., etc. I heard that spoken in Congress at hearings. That was a motivation. It was supposed to be justification. But into the midst of that, far-seeking people, even before Gifford Pinchot and before the creation of the Forest Service, there was a piece of legislation written in 1897 called literally the Organic Act. And it, and another piece of legislation written in 1960, in which our Senator Lee Metcalf was a, a strong proponent, called the Multiple Use Sustained Yield Act, became central to the dialogue. That you could not, for example, emphasize recreation as a sole category for consideration of a decision over logging or over watershed protection, etc. That you, as a land manager, were supposed to merge and mesh these things to come to any decision of harvesting that would be quote-unquote sustainable. Those things as the Bully Committee and, and as the critics raised in the Bitterroot and, and on the 
the other fourths of the nation were literally ignored. And as a writer, one of the things that struck me most powerfully during the time, there was a phrase that was in a, a legal phrase, and you, you look at the forms and reports uh, that they put out at the time, it was called allowable cut. And they calculated based on all of these values, particularly watershed and soil and, and uh, water management being the two key besides timber, uh, to limit the harvest in, in certain areas. And uh, we all know the word riparian areas adjacent to streams, the protection of streams and stuff. And all of this was uh, take place. But here I have a picture in, uh, taken in 1968 on the Bitterroot Forest of a stream literally choked in the West Fork, uh, through the East Fork of the Bitterroot, in this case, uh, choked with sediment and debris. And that was common throughout much of the, the lower elevation land in the Bitterroot, just off the National Forest. And this, by and large, was the method and manner of timber harvesting that you had. This is a, a combination of what they call terracing uh, and clear cutting. And then the other protected pieces would here, where it had been uncut within 20 to 30 years, according to their program, very interesting that they, in their much of their literature, they said that they would be coming in 20 to 30 years later to take the rest of this timber. And by that time, the regeneration of the terraced areas would thing, but that did not happen. And the reason it did not happen was because the funding for fundamental forest management to maintain then thinning and the protection uh, of the forest, gro the new forest growing on this place was never done. And by the time the uh, 40 years came and they were supposed to be harvesting timber off of this, much of the infrastructure had disappeared and therefore the management that was needed to literally achieve good forest production, board foot production, hadn't occurred, couldn't occur. And so naturally, and particularly on the west fork of the Bitterroot where this picture was taken, it got to the point that 40 years later there was no timber to harvest. And then secondly, there were no mills to take into. These are pictures here of just the clear cutting across the earth. The industry used this picture, by and large, to promote acceptance of their practices, that here we have a ponderosa pine going back on a timbered, a terraced area, but uh, there were others who looked at uh, the places that's been cut 15 and 20 years before, and this was what they saw, not a pine tree growing in profusion. Oop, I hit the wrong button. Well, into the midst of this, in the uh, late 1960s, arose, to me, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. His name was G.M. Brandborg. He had been supervisor of the Bitterroot Forest for 20-plus uh, years. And he and others were concerned about what was happening. And uh, he began a national, began an inquiry on the Bitterroot questioning, and it led then through Senator Metcalf and others who brought it to the national scope. It led to an investigation on the entire national forest system. So influential was Mr. Brandborg in raising the issue of forestry that after his death, he became the, uh, the subject of a biography called The Bitterroot and Mr. Brandborg, Clearcutting and the Struggle for Sustainable Forestry on the National Forest. I found it interesting that a retiree of almost a dozen years in a little community in western Montana 
could literally start and maintain a national controversy for eight to nine years with nothing other than $5 donations from people that helped him and the fact that he would not give up. I saw the vilification of this man. Uh, Dr. Swanson, uh, Frederick Swanson, who's done this book uh, about, th this book, by the way, won the Wallace Stegner Conservation of the Year Book Award. I saw uh, and heard and uncovered the, the stories of the vilification of this man by the industry, but he persisted. One of the ways he persisted was in the picture here I have, I took with him on the Bitterroot. Again, you see a, a, a tree stump, you see trees standing, and you see some regeneration here of some of the lands that he had managed when he was on the Bitterroot. But the key point in this is the other fellow in the picture. And that happens to be a man named Brock Evans, who was uh, the head, uh, literally, for the Audubon Society and, and then the uh, Sierra Club. And he, he, meaning Brock Evans, was the person who literally took the issue to the to national focus. Well, one of the other most important incidents then occurred. They asked the University of Montana to do an analysis. Was any of this criticism correct? And the natural game of politics was played over the eight to ten years that uh, was involved in doing this study where the industry uh, literally tried to silence the, the report so that it would never come out. And in the process, uh, the Senate Public Lands Committee sent delegates out. This happens to be Mr. Brandborg with Senator Gail McGee of Wyoming. And I'll show you another picture in a minute that, uh, that is now a place on the Bitterroot Forest that when this picture of Gail McGee and Jim Brandborg appeared on the front page of the New York Times, it was as if a window or a door had opened on the forest crisis nationally. Because once the New York Times did a piece, and I, I felt pretty good as a young journalist at the time, that, uh, my goodness, I'm older now than my dad was when I raised this issue. But at the time, I felt uh, pretty excited about the fact that six days in a row I had pictures uh, that I had provided Gladwin Hill of the New York Times on the front page of the New York Times when they ran this story. And at the same time he was here, James Nathan Miller of uh, Reader's Digest did a, actually, I think, three articles to Reader's Digest on the issue. The, Christian Science Monitor came out, the LA Times was here, NBC came out. This is actually a picture of uh, Mr. Brandborg on the left, Gladwin Hill of the New York Times, and uh, the other fellow to the right was a fellow who had been superintendent of public instruction in the Bitter Red Valley for uh, 30 years, but he also had been a forester working for Jim Brandborg, and he and those other early day foresters were outraged at what had happened and they would not be silenced and the efforts were made in the community to shut them up but they were men well this happens to be one of the major clear cuts and if you can when you see the individual walking along that well uh, that is Gladwin Hill of the New York Times and he made sure that his picture got on the front page of the Times. I was often struck by the fact that later that year he uh, encouraged me to and, and Michael Frome, who was, did the foreword for my book, and Michael Frome was a major national conservation writer at the time, had encouraged me to, in the Missoulian to submit our work, a certain award. 
But guess who got the award? Gladwin Hill of the New York Times. <laughs> because again, because of the power of the position. But then something happened. They set up some hearings in Congress. And lo and behold, CBS came out. Richard Thrallkill, who passed away recently, but was a very good reporter, came out and interviewed. That's him interviewing Brandy in a, a place uh, up on the Rye Creek on the Bitterroot Forest. But the day before the, the hearings in Washington, D.C., Mr. Brandborg's interview and then one that included me as a journalist appeared on CBS News, on Cronkite News. The next morning when Metcalf introduced me at the hearing, he said I was the most controversial citizen in Montana. Well, I think as it came to forestry, I probably was at the time because I was the lightning rod at the time forcing the dialogue. And that was, as I saw it, that was my job was to not have the answers, but to know the questions and literally put it in front of the public. And here we have Senator Frank Church on the right and Senator Jennings Randolph on the left. Senate decided that the Monongahela in West Virginia was just miles away from the, the Senate office building and the Monongahela would serve as one of the places where they had the same problems and they would do field trips there and then they sent people out to the Bitterroot and elsewhere. But Jennings Randolph was an interesting man because when one of my trips back to cover a hearing, Senator Metcalf introduced me to Mr. Randolph. And I was going to the university and working full-time at the Missoulian then, and at four o'clock in the morning, the phone would ring. Then I'd answer it and he says, Dale, this is Jennings, how are you? And the time difference didn't make any difference. And for me being a journalist, it, and then still, while well, I was still going to school and needed my sleep, thing, it didn't mean anything to me. So I tell you that I had many, many conversations with Jennings Randolph at four to five in the morning, our time, and seven to such and such back there, so part of the gate. But these two key people, Senator Church was chairman of the Senator Public Lands Committee, the, Senator, the Frank Church Wilderness in Idaho, the largest wilderness in the U.S., is named after Frank. But he and the various senators from the western states were crucial to literally the maintenance of that dialogue, keeping the dialogue going. Now here is one of the more interesting aspects. This is the timber industry from Montana testifying. They set the hearing up for three days. Their people dominated and, and, and went on and on and on. And so that the citizen activists and the other conservation groups did not, during the regularly scheduled hearing, get a chance to appear and testify. And my observation as a journalist at the time, to me it was one of the greatest examples of a political figure working toward the interest of his constituency, because I was in the room and I heard the, literally the shouting and the screaming that Lee Metcalf said, by damn, we are going to extend these hearings so all of our people can be heard. And they lasted for five and a half days, not just three. And it was only because of Frank Church and Lee Metcalf that the public got a chance to have their say. And then we returned uh, to the Bitterroot. And about that time, then, Senate is taking the hearing. They wrote an act called, it ultimately passed, called the National Forest Management Act. And it was uh, several years down the road before it passed. But uh, in the process of that, the dialogue continued, and President Nixon established a National Timber Advisory Panel. And guess who he named to chair the panel? 
a guy named Ralph Hodges, who was executive director of the National Forest Products Association. They came to Montana, I, I toured with them in the bus. Well, they pulled the bus up to this place on the Bitterroot Forest that had been cut since the hearings. And if you ever go to the Bitterroot, there's a sign now, go up to the east fork of the Bitterroot and then go up any of the roads to the right and they'll take you to this point. And the bus driver was instructed by the Forest Service to, quick historic aside here, that Bob Beach of the Beach Transportation Company in Missoula subsequently asked me, Dale, can you please start another controversy? I've gotten rich off the bus tours. <laughs> but anyway, he did. And here you have these massive buses turning around the forest road. But we're all sitting in the bus, and I'm in the second or third seat, and, and the driver, the Forest Service guy came to the driver and said, well, we'll turn around here, and we're back on the edge of Blue Joint. And he said, we'll turn around here, and then we'll go and have lunch. And Mr. Brandborg stepped up and said, no, we want to go on to the next point. We'll turn around up there. And this is it, and it was a 4,000-acre clear-cut. And one of the forest officials made the statement, oh, my God. And this became the Oh My God Clear Cut. <laughs> and it's named, there's a sign there today that says it. Okay, here's the key point on this. The silvicultural word was that they would re-harvest this area in 60 years. It's now 40 years and there is almost 0% regeneration there. That's the fact on that dry forest landscape. The projections were fundamentally lies and most of the people knew that, and certainly Mr. Brandborg did. In this picture, we have on the right, Doris Milner, who has now been inducted into the Montana Outdoor Hall of Fame for her work, and then that's Otto Teller, uh, who owned Teller Wildlife Refuge, but a very, very wealthy Californian, and he showed me a letter one time that he wrote to influence forest management, and it said, Dear Dick, and it was to Richard Nixon. So, I mean, he had that kind of standing. And then the other people are, are citizen activists. See where I go from here. I want to close with this comment because I mentioned my logger dad earlier. When my dad was 73, which I would have been, you know, 20 years younger and all that, we were having a dialogue. And in the first years of my work, he was very, very critical of what I was doing because he saw what I was doing, as did all the working people, as a threat. But we sat at a table and he had he made the comment, he says, in doing the inquiry, Dale, you were right. And then he put his hand to his head and he says, my God, he said, to think we cut our kids, our grandkids out of a job. That's what overcutting did. That's the true impact of the way the forest management was then. So, thank you. Wow.